Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. I'm Alina Utrada and I'm a master's student at Mitchell Institute and we're here today in the recording studio with Dr. Kevin Brown, who's a lecturer at Queen's University Belfast School of Law in Criminal Law and Criminal Justice and the LLB Program Director for the School of Law. Dr. Brown's research has focused on the socio-legal explorations of the regulation and governance of public spaces, victims' rights, and criminal justice. Thank you so much for being here today with us. Uh, You're very welcome, Alina. So today we're going to talk about the criminalization of homelessness, and in particular, the the increasing use of public space protection orders. I'm going to start off by reading a quote by Simon Dudley, who's the leader of the Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead in the run-up to the royal wedding. And he said, and I quote, A large number of adults that are begging in Windsor are not in fact homeless, and if they are homeless, they are choosing to reject all support services. It is therefore a voluntary choice. Now, this is a perception or attitude around homelessness that gained a lot of attention in the run-up to the royal wedding, as Simon Dudley publicly worried about how visible homelessness would impact perceptions of the town. And your work, Kevin, has dealt with how these how local councils have addressed uh, visible homelessness in public spaces. So what did you think about his remarks? Yeah, it was interesting to see how much attention his remarks got, I guess, because it was in the context of the royal wedding. And what he said was, it sounds potentially extraordinary to hear someone talk about um, people who are homeless making a voluntary choice to be so. But the attitudes that he expressed, uh, although they got him into some hot water with his fellow councillors, are actually quite commonly held um, um, throughout the country. And indeed, although action wasn't taken against the homeless in the run-up to the royal wedding, as he he suggested, because he suggested there needed to be action to be taken against um, rough sleepers and beggars because it would be bad for the borough's reputation and it wouldn't be good for tourists to have to see the, the visible homeless on the homeless on the streets and have to encounter them. Um, so although he didn't get his way in action being taken, um, many local authorities up and down the country are introducing legislation um, to remove um, those who are rough sleeping or those who are begging from public spaces. So there is a historical resonance to these attitudes and laws towards homelessness and poverty that dates back centuries. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so we'll, as you say, we'll be talking about public spaces protection orders later on in the podcast, but and they were only introduced in two thousand and fourteen. But it, uh, legislation governing the homeless, particularly the visible homeless, so those begging, those who are sleeping, has a long history, a long pedigree in the United Kingdom. Um, so we talk historically about vagrancy legislation. And this legislation goes back to the medieval period. So we've had it for over half a, half a millennium. In the Tudor period, uh, they introduced legislation uh, governing um, the public homeless in the sense of targeting those who were seen as the undeserving poor. So we very early on had this sort of um, divide between what was seen as the deserving poor 
who society would be compassionate towards, and the undeserving, those who were seen as at fault for their the state in which they find themselves in. That might be because they were seen as being lazy or they were seen as um, as bringing about their own fall due to um, alcohol abuse, due, due, due to refusing to work um, or um, committing cr- criminal acts to support their their lifestyle. And this this historical divide between the deserving and the undeserving, which was embodied through vagrancy legislation, um, has continued at different levels throughout the last 500 years. And the legislation has been reformed at points. Um, We've had more of a welfareist approach. We had sort of the primitive welfare state was based on the poor laws, so introduced during the Elizabethan era. And these provided some care, some support uh, for the most poor and destitute. But they were accompanied by the vagrancy legislation, which said, yes, we will look after the deserving, but not the undeserving. And continuing up through the decades, through the um, centuries, uh, legislation was being reformed. Um, There was more rights occasionally for and support for those who were poor. But there was always an element of targeting targeting those people perceived to be the undeserving poor. And what we tend to see is through the years, uh, whenever there's an economic downturn, um, attitudes harden towards the poor. And there tends to be fresh legislation uh, uh, intervening to curtail the rights of those who are seen as um, impeding on public space. Um, We have still in force in England and Wales uh, vagrancy vagrancy legislation that dates back to the 19th century. It's still in force and still used to this day. And that that criminalises begging and rough sleeping. Now, of course, we saw the development of the welfare state in the 20th century, particularly after um, World War II and the, the... you know, the creation of the NHS, the welfare safety net for those who find themselves out of work. And that reduced inequality. It was a, an important step forward in, in having a more equal, more democratic society. But of course, that be- began to be undermined from the 1980s onwards with the rise of Thatcherism and neoliberalism. And alongside that, we have increasing attacks on the poor, this idea that, again, that it's the poor's fault for finding themselves in the position that they, they, that they have done. And with the economic downturn of uh, more, the more recent one, of the, the Great Recession, as it's sometimes called, again, we've seen in the UK and indeed in other Western countries, these attacks on the on the what seems as the undeserving poor again. You know, it's it's maybe in today's discourse it could be chavs, um, is, is a term that's sometimes used, or neds, whatever part of the, the country you come from. But then we see also the government endorsing this view that that people are people are responsible for the situation in which they find themselves in. So through these through the decades through the centuries, uh, we've this resonates th- resonates through this idea of yes, occasionally we will view the poor as, as deserving and in need of support and protection. But particularly when it comes to public space, this idea that the poor, um, if they're intruding on the majority in society and their use of that space, they can very quickly become to be seen as undeserving and worthy of criminalisation. 
So you talk about this distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor that goes back literally five, 500 years. Um, and we see that uh, sort of reflected in the rhetoric today of people saying, you know, the poor, you know, they, they don't give them money because they're all alcoholics or they're just going to spend it on drugs. Um, do you think those attitudes are a reflection of those, those older, older laws or are they uh, based in, you know, what we like to think of as a modern sense of reality of statistics of this is actually a reflection of, of um, what's going on? I think that's a good, that's a good question. I think there's, we have this populist um, response to uh, poverty that, re- that resonates throughout the centuries. And it, of course, it takes slightly different form each time and the terminology differs um, in each historical period. But there's definitely a, a resonance. And that is, instead of saying, as a society, um, how do we create a more equal society by working together and supporting one another? It's actually, there's certain elements of our, of our political class who will encourage us to divide amongst each other to apportion blame instead of support supporting one another and the way of apportioning blame to the person to say well it's your own fault um, it's if it wasn't for again drinking or taking drugs um, or per other poor lifestyle choices you wouldn't find yourself in the situation that you do and, and it's in a convenient way for the government instead of focusing on more structural issues that are the causes of poverty um, such as um, limited uh, affordable housing, for example, or um, curtailments made to welfare uh, benefits. And, for example, we've seen a report out um, very recently talking about how, diff- how people are forced to wait weeks or even months sometimes to access benefits. And so for the government to deflect away from that, um, particularly in this age of austerity, it's, it's about encouraging us to blame one another. And the visible poor who tend to be those who are on the, in the public spaces, uh, the homeless, including um, those who are begging or are sleeping, can be an easy target. So you don't think poverty is a moral failing? I don't think it's a moral failing, no. I mean, it's true that there's a combination of, in terms of why people um, end up homeless, and of course there's different definitions of homeless. Um, I think today we're focusing on the street homeless, but there are... Uh, Within the broader category of homelessness, for example, we would include those who are maybe um, forced to to stay in temporary accommodation, which there are, there are many individuals and families in the country who, who, are, who are doing that at the minute, or those who are maybe what would be described as uh, sofa surfers, you know, who maybe have nowhere to stay, they're not able to afford to rent uh, accommodation for themselves, so they're moving from sofa to sofa of friends and relatives. But then you also, of course, then have the, the street homeless um, uh, as well, and they're the most visible manifestation of that. Uh, and when, when reports that have looked into what, uh, by crisis and other charities, what is causing and what are the causes of street homelessness and homelessness more generally, it's actually a com- it's, it includes those those big s- structural factors that you know of inequality and uh, limited access to benefits that are the main drivers. But there are personal circumstances as well in terms of addiction, whether it be to alcohol or to drugs, um, relationship breakdown, individuals who suffered domestic or sexual abuse and have, have had to have had to flee their homes because of that. So while there may be personal 
uh, factors mixed in with those structural factors, that doesn't mean that we apportion blame to those individuals or hold them responsible because it's still the state's obligation um, to support those individuals who are having personal difficulties, who are in, in having those complex uh, complications on, uh, added to their lives that make them, makes it very difficult to maintain a home. So, public space protection orders, or PSPOs, sounds pretty innocuous and innocent, but tell us why and how they're being used. Yeah, so PSPOs were introduced in 2014 by the then Conservative and Liberal Democrat Coalition. And they it was, legis- it was legislation they were introducing to reform the Labour Party's anti-social behaviour provisions that they, that they introduced. I suppose the most high-profile provision introduced under Tony Blair was the ASBO, the Anti-Social Behaviour Order. So that legislation was replaced in England and Wales uh, by a series of, uh, and introducing a series of new interventions, such as criminal behaviour orders, anti-social behaviour injunctions, and also what we're focusing on today, the Public Spaces Protection Order, or the PSPO. So they're relatively recent. They've they were introduced in 2014, as we've said, and it, they give local authorities in England and Wales the power to issue an order. So it's not a court order, it's the local authority that issues the order themselves. And this order will govern a certain a section of public space, a particular location within that local authority area. They can demarcate for themselves what what the area is, um, how extensive. So in some cases, it may be one or two streets. In other cases, you will see entire town centres or entire towns or cities covered by the PSPO. It's really up to the discretion of the local authority. And what they do then is they decide on not just the spaces and the locations to be covered by the PSBO, but the behaviour. What activities are they going to target? So there isn't a a set list of activities. Uh, The government, the central government had said effectively was to, in terms of localism, it's localism agenda, said they wanted to trust local authorities to work with communities to decide what what were the types of behaviour that were impacting on quality of life in their locations. And that was one of the key phrases in the legislation, quality of life. And the argument was that, that local authorities would make the decision in consultation with the communities to say, well, we're going to target certain behaviour and that will improve those public spaces for the users of those public spaces. Now, the government initially did not talk about targeting homelessness, uh, but increasingly local authorities have decided to use the PSPOs to target activities associated with homelessness. Now, a condition of a PSPO would not say that they were that would not just mention homelessness, it would mention activities associated with homelessness. So that um, would be begging, uh, rough sleeping, and loitering would be the key ones. And the local authorities have discretion exactly how are they going to define what's covered. So is it begging in general, which we see in some local authority areas? Is it so-called aggressive begging? Or in in one local authority area that I looked at, um, their PSPO covered passive aggressive begging, which was an interesting (laughs) interesting choice. Um, Do they cover rough sleeping? Or is it leaving off bedding in an area? Or possessions? Uh, So there's different ways that they can target homelessness um, through the PSPO, even if they're not specifically using the word homelessness. It's it's 
again, and that resonates, of course, with the vagrancy provisions um, of the past and the attitude of the past targeting activities associated with street homelessness. Anyone who, once a local authority decides to issue a public spaces protection order and they, they, for the, to protect quality of life of, in, of individuals using that space, they will list those activities. And anyone who breaches the conditions um, commits a criminal offence. And the maximum penalty is a £1,000 fine, um, but also fixed penalties can be issued. And the, the fixed penalties, of course, make it much, e- much easier to enforce these provisions. So rather than having to go to court the way you would if with a vagrancy, um, a criminal offence relating to vagrancy, um, with the PSPO, a, the, local, the police or the local authority uh, can officer can simply just issue um, a fixed penalty notice that might be, for example, for a hundred hundred pound uh, typically. Uh, so th- this is how PSPOs are were finding they're being used. Uh, it's still, as I said, re- re- relatively recent they were introduced, so two thousand and fourteen, and it took a few years for local authorities to become comfortable with them, to understand them, and for uh, so when we saw in, in the initial years not being used that often. But now we're seeing most local authorities have introduced a PSBO. Most haven't yet and um, targeted homelessness. They target a range of different activities, but an increasing number are targeting activities associated with homelessness, which is a real, uh, I think, a real concern. So what has been the actual impact of these uh, PSPOs on, on homeless people who might be in these public spaces? What a PSPO does, because when a, a local authority passes, decides to introduce a PSPO, and if it, if it targets homeless activities associated with homelessness, such as begging or rough sleeping, they will publish the, uh, the terms of the order. And this will often include a map demarcating the area that is covered, and as well as publishing them, for example, on their website. They will often target that particular public space that they're concerned about. So it might be a high street, it might be a park, for example, and they will put, they, I've seen billboards being put up listing the terms and conditions of the PSBO, um, sometimes accompanied with the, the map as well. And that's just by its mere presence saying to the homeless, you're not welcome here. So even if it's not enforced, it's a very visible statement that you're not welcome. And so the idea of marginalizing the homeless, because the the thing about law is, um, it's not only in its enforcement that it can have a detrimental effect on minorities. It's actually by its mere presence. And here we're we're seeing a physical manifestation, a physical presence, that the PSBOs can have that that chilling effect, that isolating effect for for homeless people. So there's 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 that issue. Um, PSBOs also give local authorities and the police and other individuals who will be enforcing these orders the discretion to then to say to homeless people, "You better move on. You better leave this space. Otherwise, we'll issue you with a fine, a fixed penalty." So even if they're not actually criminalizing or even issuing a fixed penalty to a homeless person, they're moving them on. They're removing them from this space. So that's another issue in terms of the idea of banishment, banishment of homeless people. And then, of course, ultimately, PSPOs can be, homeless people, if there's a PSPO covering activities such as begging or rough sleeping, those homeless people can find themselves issued with a fixed penalty or even ultimately taken to court and issued with a criminal conviction. 
So why is it that these local authorities are using PSPOs to target homelessness? Is just is this just an example of, you know, they weren't aware of the effects or do they find that this is an effective tool that they think will address the issue of homelessness? Well, it's it's interesting to know it's an interesting question why are they introducing them? Because we already have the vagrancy legislation in, in place that goes dates back to the 19th century, and it, it's never been repealed, and it's still enforced by the by the police in England and Wales. It no longer applies. It was repealed as it applies to to Scotland. So, so why bother introducing further um, legislation and orders that would would criminalize homelessness? It's a, it's a it's a it's a good um, question. Well, PSPOs are easier to enforce than vagrancy legislation. Um, to enforce that 19th century legislation, um, the only, first of all, can be the police that can enforce it. So the local authorities are not able to enforce it themselves. And that so limits who is able to enforce it. And of course, fixed penalties can be issued for, for breach of a PSPO. Fixed penalties cannot be issued in relation to breach of vagrancy uh, legislation. So much easier to enforce. It's also going back to what, I've, what I mentioned there about it's a communicative tool. By introducing a PSPO, a local authority is able to say, we're doing something about homelessness. Um, and it's not going to cost them much to, to pass a PSPO. They don't have to, said, don't have to go to court to get one. Um, and, and really the only cost is in the publicity. Um, and of course, in the, even, if they don't, if even, even if they never infor- um, ultimately enforce it or do very little to enforce it. And so it's a way of them um, communicating to majoritarian sensibilities that maybe is not uncomfortable with the presence of people begging and people rough sleeping, whether that be um, residents or businesses, local businesses, and saying, look, we're doing something, we're listening to you, and we're taking action to deal with this problem. And it's much easier to pass a PSPO and say that you're taking action than dealing with the, the structural issues and surrounding homelessness, which can be difficult to deal with, particularly in an, this era of austerity where there's been significant cuts um, to the budgets of local authorities, um, which is, makes it more difficult to, to take action against these, these, these in, um, cases of homelessness. And it's also a case where we have a, um, an increasing numbers of homeless people in England and Wales. Statistics show that um, year on year, we have significant increases in homelessness. There's different f- factors contributing to that, but it's in part because of local authority budgets being cut and the reforms to to benefits making it more difficult to access benefits for the, for those who are in in the position of needing them, and also making it di- the government's policy of making it difficult for. Uh, for European migrants to access benefits, which is, again, all these factors increasing the numbers of homeless people. So uh, local authorities are then faced with a a growing problem, a growing uh, visible problem of of people on the streets begging and of sleeping. And the idea of then of majoritarian sensibilities of people saying, I want something to be done about this. And the PSBO is in some ways an easy win for them. So you, t- you talk a bit in your research about some of the worries around a lack of accountability in actually enacting the PSPOs. So can you talk a little bit about that, that process? Yeah, certainly. So yeah, PSPOs, as I've said, they don't require a court order. Uh, so it's not a case that a local authority applies to the court and says, uh, ask permission to introduce a PSPO. And when we think back to interventions such as the ASBO, 
Um, a local authority might have applied for an ASBO against an individual, but they had to apply to a court and the court had to be convinced of the need for an antisocial behaviour order and then subsequently to grant it. Uh, so that provided oversight, not always effective oversight, but it did provide oversight. With the PSPO, the, there's, it's not a court order, the local authority issues it themselves. It's, when you talk about an, uh, a local authority issuing a PSPO, people often think, well, that must mean that all the councillors get together and vote on introducing a PSPO and have that sort of collegiate decision. And there's no, so there's democratic accountability and democratic scrutiny. However, uh, research by Appleton, um, dating back, I think, to 2016, um, found that uh, often, it, it, in many cases, it isn't a full council that's voting on this PSBO, and there's no requirement in the legislation for that to be so. It's not, some, it's not even often um, a committee of the council, but it's, the council has delegated to an individual, uh, to, um, a, a, you know, to a civil servant uh, within the council to make that decision as to what the contents of the PSBO will have. So we're talking about, in some cases, one person deciding the contents of this PSBO. And that may or may not require further approval from a committee of the, of the council. So there's a lack of democratic accountability there. And research has shown uh, that where local authorities do put the PSBO to a full council vote, that there that those more draconian conditions, such as those at target homelessness, are less likely to be passed. So where, this, where there is accountability, where there is scrutiny, um, the, the PSPOs are, are, are less, less draconian. Another problem with the PSPO is that it requires a local authority to consult, but it, it's not, it doesn't have the stipulations that we would expect with a consultation. It has fewer requirements than a consultation on planning provision, for example, uh, fewer requirements uh, for consultation when it comes to uh, bylaws uh, as well in, in England and Wales. And so the, a typical way for a local authority who's considering introducing a PSBO to conduct a consultation is to do one online. And having sampled them as part of my research, the the consultations, there's no set format, but having looked at the format of some recent ones, it tends to be that those who are completing the consultation just see a list of, be of behaviours such as begging. And those responding to the consultation are asked to rate to, to what degree they believe that begging is a problem. The, the risk with that is that, of course, by including them in the consultation and saying, is begging a very big problem, a big problem, um, no problem, uh, for, uh, for example, is it encourages, encourages those completing the consultation to think, well, it must be a problem if it was included in the consultation to begin with. And it also, the way the consultation is written, is a temptation then for people just to think, well, I'll, I should take that it's a big problem because that means something's more likely to be done about it. So there's a problem then with the, not only just the democratic accountability, but in the way the consultations um, are, are gathered as well. Another issue in terms of accountability is that um, with bylaws that in England and Wales, when a local authority passes a bylaw, they have to submit it first to central government. And central government then has, a, has, a, has, a, has some say on, on, the, on the, an oversight of the, of the bylaw. And a list of bylaws is then maintained by central government. There is no need to submit and there's no facility to submit uh, a PSPO or a proposed PSPO to central government. So there's no 
oversight from central government. And there's uh, there's no list set list for individuals such as myself, you know, researchers wanting to scrutinise the US uh, the use of PSPOs to go and have a, a ready access to all the PSPOs in the country. I've had to, as part of my research, approach each local authority in turn, ask for their PSPO, ask for their consultation documents, ask for their associated policy documents, which is quite a slow, cumbersome uh, process. So there's not there's not accountability from researchers either. And then for those who wish to challenge a PSBO once it is in place, the government framed the legislation to make it difficult to challenge them in the courts. So they, um, individuals who wish to challenge them, um, have certain, only a certain number of weeks to challenge the order. That, uh, that makes it difficult if someone arrives into the area outside of that period. I think it's, it's, I think it's six weeks from, from memory. Uh, then we're, they're left with only the option of uh, getting the support of organisations, NGOs such as Liberty or um, Crisis to go through the judicial review route, but that that can be um, expensive, can, can be expensive, and often doesn't yield positive um, results. So again, there's a lack of judicial accountability. So on all the different forms of accountability and scrutiny, PSPOs are deeply troubling. The PSPOs were part of a push um, to make local governments take more responsibility for addressing social issues. So do you think that push is a good one? Is this just an example of some a good idea implemented very poorly? Or do you think that the central government needs to take more responsibility for this? Well, a key theme of David Cameron's government uh, under the Conservative Party, but also then in, in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, uh, was this principle of localism. And he talked about, connected to the idea of the big society. And localism was this idea that we should devolve powers um, from the central state uh, to as low um, a level as possible so that citizens and communities feel more involved in their day-to-day lives, can make decisions that impact on their um, on their day-to-day lives, uh, so this was this PSPO fits that narrative very well. It's, you know, it's saying we're going to trust local authorities to decide what behaviour impacts on quality of life in their localities, and that you know different different local authorities will have different um, will different have different issues. Different communities will have different ideas of what's acceptable or unacceptable in public space. Uh, and that was, of course, one of the reasons that they didn't introduce um, this central government scrutiny or um, other levels of scrutiny because they felt, let's let's leave it up. We can trust local authorities. We can trust local communities to determine what the contents of a PSBO should be. And it's been interesting because the, the, a couple of years after introducing the uh, the public spaces protection orders, the Conservative government introduced the Homelessness Reduction Act in 2017. It's only came into force in um, April 2018. It's only just come into force. Uh, it governs, uh, it governs uh, England. And it places obligations um, on local authorities, again, again, this idea of localism, but local authorities to um, take action to reduce levels of homelessness uh, in their localities and places responsibilities on them to do so. The central government has also promised 1.2 billion of additional spending to support local authorities in, in dealing with homelessness. So the government has recognised that homelessness is an increasing problem. I mean, the, f- the figures are testament uh, to that. So there's no denying that. 
but it's I think it's a, it's it's an interesting juxtaposition that it, on on one level they're saying um homelessness is a is is problematic we need to support those who are homeless we need to place obligations on local authorities to do so through the 2017 act and we're going to provide additional funding to help them but also at the same time facilitating through PSBOs uh, local government uh, taking punitive action against those who are ho- against those who are homeless now that's i would say that the the reason that we have this contradiction is Yes, the, the government have more recently taken a, a more traditionally welfareist response to homelessness through the Homelessness Reduction Act, this idea of providing support. But this is very much in the context that we've talked about, this idea of seeing the you know the deserving and the undeserving poor, apportioning blame to those who are not in work or those who find themselves homeless, um, this idea of, you know, the anti, anti-immigration attitude, um, the... I suppose the the context of in, individualism as opposed to a more communicative um, or more um, sort of communities working together to tackle social issues, and to this problem, this sort of more neoliberal attitude, pervasive attitude, um, sits uneasily with the government's supposed concern for a welfareist response to homelessness through the two thousand and seventeen Act. So they're sending very mixed signals to local authorities. They're saying through the 2017 Act, a welfareist response is important and is key. However, by by this through the more general neoliberal debate and narrative that has permeated through um, central and local government over the last decade, they've they're sending out the signal: you should you know apportion blame to individuals, and you can take punitive action. And so I think that's why you're seeing some local authorities, an increasing number of local authorities targeting the homeless through PSPOs. So part of this debate centers around, too, about how we want to or how we think we should interact in public spaces. And I think a lot of what we were talking about is reflected, too, in this the rhetoric around gentrification. So how should... um, how inclusive should public spaces be? So do you think that... um, these PSPOs are part and parcel of this debate around gentrification and how how we should have public spaces. Should public spaces be more inclusive, or are we just displacing displacing poverty and homelessness? Yes. Yeah, so gentrification is an interesting issue because this is not because it doesn't just affect the UK. There's there's discussions about gentrification throughout a lot of the uh, Western world and big debates about it in in America and in, in for example in New York and places like in like Brooklyn. And gentrification can be seen as a positive, and originally it was seen as a positive in the sense of you know communities that um, have high levels of crime and disorder, where the housing uh, stock may not be in particularly good shape, um, where there's not great local amenities, uh, where there's a lot of graffiti and uh, damage to facilities such as parks, and that through gentrification, you improve these areas, you know, they improve the standard of housing, you improve the cleanliness, you reduce crime, you in- and then you encourage um, more people into the community, um, individuals who have a desire to improve the area further, and you, you sort of have this sort of positive feedback of you know, as, as the area improves, more people come in, and the area gets better, and so on and so on. But more recently, there's been greater discussion about the negative effects of gentrification. 
that it isn't purely a positive experience or uh, a positive phenomenon. And that is that people can feel excluded through gentrification, that the original residents of an area, and often areas that are gentrified are areas that would have high social housing uh, populations, um, then feel that as, as you know, rent, rental prices rise and as mortgage prices rise, that um, you know, social housing stock can be sold off or those who maybe were, were privately renting but could only afford a certain level of rent then, feel, then are excluded from those areas because of those increasing um, rental values. And areas can become um, less diverse. Um, so there can be um, racial disparities where you have more white people moving in um, to areas. There's been a, a discussion in, in Brooklyn, for example. And what was a traditionally um, largely black population um, is, is being increasingly displaced. And this then, if we fo- go back to the, this was a, the focus of our, of, our, of, our, of our podcast today, um, homeless people can then, gentrification can have a negative effect on them as well in that areas where uh, people, first of all, maybe are made homeless because of gentrification and because of the the reduced affordable housing in that space. But then, and then also there's more more of an intolerance um, as more sort of middle-class sensibilities that are uncomfortable with uh, the presence of homeless people um, begin to predominate in those areas. And so homeless people can feel completely excluded and through interventions such as PSPOs can be completely excluded from those areas. So what do you think should be done about PSPOs? Do you think they're a good idea, implemented poorly? Should they be repealed, got rid of completely? What would be your ideal scenario? I think we're waiting for, I suppose, as I said, they're relatively new um, and they've become, they're becoming increasingly popular. So there's more and more of them about. Um, and we're waiting for sort of cases, you know, particularly within the higher courts, to examine um, the validity of some of these conditions. I don't think we'll ever get a, a court case um, saying that PSPOs per se um, are illegal or in breach, breach um, you know, human rights, but the certain conditions do. And I think over time, we'll get a greater sense of of what's acceptable and unacceptable, what, what the courts are prepared to view as unacceptable conditions. The problem is that, that that will take time. And because PSPOs are differ so significantly from local authority to local authority, so one local authority might target begging by just having a blanket provision saying no begging. Another, another local authority might say no aggressive begging and define aggressive begging. What happens if a court uh, strikes down a provision on the first local authority that criminalised begging through the PSPO? Does that impact on the other local authority who just criminalised aggressive begging? So it, it can take a long time uh, for the courts to, to sort of help set the boundaries of what's acceptable and unacceptable when it comes to PSPOs, and particularly because of the difficulty of, of mounting legal and court challenges to them. But I think we will we will see these dip, um, come through the courts more more frequently in the next in the next couple of years. There, w- I would like to see PSPOs potentially have their uses. This idea that we might have a shared idea of how we wish to use public space and improve public space for everyone. So I don't think necessarily we need we should scrap PSPOs, but I think greater protections need to be put in. Uh, so the government, c- there were a number of amendments proposed during the passage of the legislation that introduced PSPOs, which I think could improve them. Um, 
And one of those would be to improve the level of scrutiny of PSPOs and when they're proposed. So you could, for example, amend the legislation to say that there needs to be a vote of the entire council. I mean, well, you know, it must be a vote of the, of the council chamber on whether a PSPO should be passed in an area or not. So that would increase levels of democratic scrutiny. You could amend the legislation to make it easier to mount in legal challenges in the courts to PSPOs. Uh, so that that would also be of, of of benefit. We could stipulate in the um, legislation that certain provisions are not permitted. Uh, the government has recently clar- sought to clarify in an updated version of the guidance, statutory guidance covering PSPOs, that homelessness per se should not be um, c- covered by PSPOs. The difficulty of that is um, it was homelessness generally isn't. I haven't seen a PSPO that just criminalizes uses the term homelessness. It's usually activities associated with homelessness, and the guidance does doesn't quite doesn't mention the reformed guidance doesn't say you can't continue to use PSPOs to target activities such as begging or loitering, for example, and it it talks about. So it sort of gives advice that maybe they shouldn't be used to target um, rough sleeping, but it doesn't explicitly say that say that they can't be. So I think clearer statutory guidance on this would also be of benefit in sort of restricting the this misuse of PSPOs, as I would see it. So we've heard a lot about how uh, local authorities are using um, defensive or hostile architecture in order to structure public spaces and exclude certain populations. Could you talk a little bit about how that impacts the issue of homelessness? Yes, it's it's an increasing concern of charities uh, such as Crisis about the use of this hostile or defensive architecture. And what this entails, there's different examples of it out there, but it's making spaces unpleasant for those who would um, be wishing to sit down or to lie down um, within those spaces. So an example we have seen in Belfast City, uh, through Belfast City Council, is the removal removal of park benches or the placing of um, armrests in the middle of the park bench, so not just on the on the two sides of it, but in the middle, making it impossible to lie on that park bench. And though that's architecture, changes to furniture or changes to uh, floor space, for example, floor space putting in studs, metal studs, so people can't lie within within doorways or under archways, is designed to through the architecture itself to exclude individuals. And I think that's. A very symbolic of our approach to homelessness, that we're actually altering and amending our architecture to exclude them. So finally, we hear on the news a lot that that homelessness is rising, um, especially in reference to places like Edinburgh, where, you know, they say they were very close to eradicating rough sleeping. So what are actually ways that governments can address homelessness? I, mean, I think it's it's difficult to completely eradicate uh, homelessness, and of course, as I said, we've talked about there's different types of homelessness um, that we're dealing with, um, and so sort of different solutions that need to be offered. But making sure there's affordable housing um, is available, um, and for social housing, including supportive social housing for those who need additional supports, and um, to maintain and uh, maintain a life li- uh, living in an apartment or a house, and um, also that the the benefit system, and um, 
that we had the, the severe problems that we're having now where individuals may not receive their benefits for weeks or months, leaving them destitute, that you know, the benefit system is reformed so that individuals are no longer having to to live without 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 any money or live live purely on on charity and uh, would be a great help. And then also working supportively through welfare solutions to to deal with uh, homelessness, uh, because I think what we all agree is that there shouldn't be a need for anyone to beg on the street or to sleep rough on the street. But my criticisms of PSPOs is not that we should. Um, that people people should be left to beg or to, to rough sleep and it's not a cause of concern. It is a cause of concern, but it shouldn't be a, a punitive solution to, to this issue. It should be a welfare supportive solution. Uh, the, the, these individuals often have very complex lives. They require a lot of support and they require different levels of support depending on the structural factors or the personal factors that have led them to be homeless. But, but through investment, through best practice, um, through seeing it as as a need to support these individuals as opposed to punish these individuals. I think that is the, the way for us to reduce homelessness. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for taking the time to speak to us today. I hope our listeners are a little bit more informed about what on earth PSPOs are and um, how to better address homelessness. My pleasure. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Law Pod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by myself, Richard Somerville, Rachel Colleen, Julia Hunter, Rachel Lin, Joanne Tang, and Daphne Lim. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. Law Pod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to our guest speaker, Dr. Kevin Brown. You can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at QUB Law Pod. For more information, you can visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Alina Utrada, and this was Law Pod.